310, entitled New Prince, New Pomp, circa 1605, and it consists of two reflections, um, one of which uh, concerns the election um, in the midst of the final stage of which we are, but the more important of the um, reflections, the first and longer one, concerns COVID and something I've noticed that has to do with Romans 7 and a very consistent uh, theme in the ministry of Mockingbird and certainly in my own life and ministry. You've just heard 52%, which is a song from the amazing, terrible, and yet extraordinarily important, as it turns out, movie, B-minus movie entitled Wild on the Streets from 1968 about a youth revolution in which the under-30s take over the United States, become the 52% and overcome all resistance and drug the senators and congressmen and the senior leaders of the the country and sends everybody over the age of 30 to internment camps. And um, there we are. The... um, title, though, of the cast itself is New Prince, New Pomp, a poem that you'll read, a nativity poem by Robert Southwell, the English Roman Catholic priest poet, which was written around 1605. But I wanted to use the phrase, I associated to the phrase New Prince, New Pomp, not because of the election, but because of a kind of strange association I have to Romans 7 and Romans 3 in light of a current dynamic that I notice everywhere. And I wonder if you've noticed it. And I'm trying to understand it in terms of the gospel and sort of the the uh, the great issues of law and grace and Mockingbird and my own attempt to understand one's inner life in relation to the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we read the astonishing um, affirmation, I think it's three times in the letters of St. Paul, that where... The law came in, sin increased. When the law increases, 
so increases the trespass. And that's the tremendous insight that where you hear a no, the more likely you are to do the thing to which the no is addressed. In other words, if somebody says, don't do this, that's the law, you are, it doubles, if not triples, your um, inner almost compulsion to do the very thing which you're told not to do. It's rebellion, it's reaction, it's resistance, it's a million different things. But the law increases the possibility and in fact the probability of you're doing the very thing it's telling you not to do. We've been through this material. It's old hat. If I tell you not to read the one book on the shelf which happens to be uh, Tropic of Cancer by... Um, Miller, you're going, Henry Miller, you're, you're going to immediately, as soon as you, uh, whoever told you not to read it, that's where you're going to go to. You tell a little child to play with everything in the room except that one particular thing that belongs to mommy he can't touch. The first thing he's going to do when mommy leaves the room is go up to it and touch it. That's from the astonishing anthropology of St. Paul. Where the law comes in, the trespass increases. Now, I see a form of this, but it's not exactly the same thing. It's parallel to it. You might almost say apophthegmatically. That is, you can make a statement out of it, but I haven't, I can't quite tie it in exactly the etiology of it with the great insight of Tullian and Mockingbird and St. Paul and Jesus, but. Um, Something is happening that I notice. This is it. What I notice is, as the um, pandemic decreases in its um, real seriousness or real urgency or real um, threat, the measures against it and the self, the, the religion of the measures against it increases. In other words, you have... Uh, an infinite, an increasing number of infections. We know about the tests, many, many tests, a lot of new cases, but the number of hospitalizations and fatalities is down like 85%. And the survival ratio, in fact, the health ratio, especially among everybody under the age of whatever it is, 70 or 60, or whatever you want to call it, um, the lower you go, there's almost, almost zero percentage um, for our grandchildren to have, um, to be physically threatened by a positive uh, result. Now, this um, means that where I live in Connecticut currently or in Florida, wherever it is, that the actual number of people being hospitalized and dying from complications arising from COVID is very small compared to the number of people who test positive for it. And yet, and it's decreasing because there are all sorts of uh, new understandings and therapies. So when you get it, even now, your chances of surviving it are even now much higher than they were in, than they were in March. But uh, in March, it wasn't that bad either from this point of view, if in the most demographics. In other words, it exists. It's very contagious. It's very, very, it's almost impossible to control. And yet the threat that it constitutes to the vast majority of people is not only in, in very small statistically percentage-wise, but it's also um, decreasing. But at the same time, the kind of religion of, uh, of the law of masks is, it has increased um, arithmetically. Um, so um, we were out in a beautiful shoreline state, a uh, city park in Connecticut, recently quite regularly, and more and more as the coronavirus fear continues, uh, more and more, more and more people are wearing masks outside. And in fact, uh, two days ago, about half the people, this is walking along the beach, a windy New England beach, which is not highly traversed. I mean, people were there, but no, it's just like could be a, a, 
a non-state park beach almost anywhere uh, that wasn't near a resort or anything. Just people here and there, couples and groups of small groups of people, mostly groups of two walking. And a tremendous number of people, especially the younger ones, were wearing masks um, when there was no question of social distancing and the wind was blowing from the Atlantic and we were essentially on the the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria as far as the, the climate was concerned. And um, they were wearing masks with such a feeling that I said, oh my gosh, I had brought one, you know, but if we pass someone who's 20 feet away on the beach uh, wading into the Atlantic, gosh, I, I, I better, I'm going to feel terrible if I don't put that mask on. And then you, you sort of don't like the fact that they're telling you by wearing their mask that you have to wear your mask outside uh, in the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of a big, almost billowing. And you're also, um, you feel sort of, they're judging you and then you sort of, so if you don't have a mask and they walk by, you don't look at them, you're, you feel, you know, being judged, the Pharisee who walks by, you know, you're being judged and then you immediately get your mask on and then, oh, thank God. But then of course you, you, if you stare at them at all, you just look into their eyes and you have no idea whether they're smiling or laughing or frowning, which is more likely. But I guess what I'm saying, and everywhere I go, I find that the degree of, and in restaurants, all of a sudden now there are signs cropping up everywhere that if you're eating a meal in a restaurant, and according to all the rules that you're observing, and you get up to go to the men's room, or you get up to greet somebody else, or you get up just to, for a minute to stretch, you have to put your mask on inside the restaurant, just if you walk around just to say hello to somebody uh, bef before sitting back down. And in one state in the union, the signs say, um, put your mask on between bites. <laughs> I mean, um, but it's increased. But my point is not the thing itself, the COVID itself, which is real. My, the spiritual principle is here that it seems as if we're getting more used to the fact that there are in fact almost nobody that most people know. I know a lot of people that have had it and have it, especially if they're 18 or 19, like a million and a half. Um, but, um, the um, ex ex external pressure to seem to be maximally um, obedient has increased. So to the extent almost that it's, uh, and in Florida you see the same thing, that it's decreasing in its actual threat level and normal life is coming back in some ways, the stress that you must do this, that, and the other thing has increased in the atmosphere. You feel, I feel sometimes like I'm in uh, sort of East Berlin, you know, in 1958, everybody was walking around. They, they, you didn't want to stay outside because you didn't want to be observed. So everybody was sort of scuttering back and forth from your where you work to your little apartment, to back again, out to the grocery store two seconds and back because everybody was watching everybody. And the Stasi, it turned out, we were told by people who really knew what they were talking about it and lived it. There's something like... 40% of the, 45% of the East German population was spying on the other 55% officially. I mean, le legally, I, I was with some Stasi informants who were, who were, former informants who were civilians now, and they told me that they, 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 every single one of their neighbors was on their list, and they would report once a week as to the different uh, patterns of going out and coming in and so forth and what they saw. So I felt, oh my gosh, that feels a little bit like that way, sort of in Connecticut, like I'm, I'm being observed all the time, and I go out and I do, you know what I'm saying? I mean, tell me, do you, are you with me there? Something about the, I, I guess if I were to put it, it's not that where the law came in, sin increased, but rather where the threat actually came down, the um, theatricality of showing that you were um, a good citizen in somehow avoiding the threat or contributing to the communitarian effort to, to resist the threat had become more 
uh, heavy. The, the burden of proof that you were a solid citizen vis-a-vis -vis the coronavirus was somehow increasing almost in some kind of geometric or strange parallel arrangement with the decrease in actual danger. Now, I haven't figured it out. Now, maybe you can put it in a, a kind of a... a, a, a Maybe you could put it in some kind of a form. Uh, let me know. Write me and let me know or tell Mockingbird because it's a fascinating thing. I'll bet you you're seeing it. Maybe you're not. Now, by the way, my voice isn't that good. And it was terrible in the last podcast. And I re-recorded it once and it still didn't come. And somebody was saying to me, are you okay? Well, actually, I have no sore throat. I'm perfectly well. I've been tested for you name it and everything recently. Um, it's stress. For a variety of reasons, I find that my voice, my, you know, my need to, is uh, increasing. I, I see this sometimes in our, our grandchildren. It's one of the ways they compensate for a stressful situation at school or wherever it may be. I notice that they clear their throat a lot. Well, they've gotten that from me. I somehow start clearing my throat or needing or feeling the need to clear my throat much more when I'm under stress. And part of it is this thing, whenever I go out of our condo, I, I begin to feel, oh my gosh, I'm a second-class citizen. I better really make sure I, whenever I, especially these very strong joggers, uh, the, the younger w women excel in this as they're jogging on the track with only five people in this huge track, and they're jogging and running so effectively and fast, but they're wearing their masks the entire jog, you know, outside in the cold weather, and then I say, oh my gosh, I better wear my mask as I'm, you know, I can barely breathe as it is, um, but I do. So that's the first thing, and then and the second thing is just a little silly note about the um, about what's going on in the election. Uh, this is not any kind of a statement of one candidate or another because you, that has to be resisted. But I have noticed, and I noticed it last time that um, this kind of a thing that happened last time with the successful candidate that all the um, institutions of the country were sort of against that candidate. And after it was all over, someone actually wrote an article, my friend David Ignatius, about me and him, about David and me. And he said, did our attacks on the successful candidate somehow boomerang? Well, there's something about when you're, when everybody's against you, and I don't think people realize this when they're in the majority, that Somehow, I, whether you want to call it karma or God or the universe or nature or life or fairness or group psychology, something about when everybody gangs up or everybody apparently gangs up against one person or whether it's sympathy for the underdog, something about nature, about the way the earth moves, somehow, if that person is strong enough to withstand it, almost always rebalances the equation in her or his favor. It's, you see it again and again and again. It's the secret of Alexander the Great at the Battle of, I always want to say Gargamel, but it's not. It's the Battle of the Granicus. And he was facing a incredibly heavy odds against the Persians. There was no way he could win this battle. And right at the key moment, he, on his charging horse, just leapt into the river Granicus and went over and charged the enemy that was on the other side, camped in vast numbers with huge thousands of archers and trained soldiers. And he just led a, a much smaller group of his um, Macedonian infantry across the river. And they won like in a second because people were so undone. The majority was so undone by the kind of uh, undaunted courage, the strange risk-taking sort of General Patton-like 
um, gesture that they ran away. There's a scene in one of um, Heinrich Böhler's World War II novels. I think it's called A Soldier's Legacy or A Soldier's Tale or A Soldier's Story. And they're on the Russian front, and this small German unit is absolutely getting just about to be overrun by a huge um, wave of oncoming Russian infantry and tanks and mainly infantry and uh, machine gunners and uh, overwhelmingly outnumbered. And suddenly, instead of running away, the captain in charge of this small German unit, for some strange reason, takes out his sword and charges against the Russians. And his men are sort of charged with him about 40 of them, and the Russians are so undone that they retreat. I mean, like it's like a 1,000 against 120, and they, they are so undone by this one man's bizarre, seemingly irrational courage that he routs them, and the Russians are completely routed and, and run away or are taken prisoner, and Bill just describes it one of the strange, who would have ever thought, instead of being shot down instantly by 150 Russian submachine guns, this fellow absolutely doesn't care and he to you know to lose his life is to save it and uh, he wins and i was thinking about the election and i do sometimes want to say to people who are on the overwhelming majority you know all the different forces against uh, one of the candidates all the certainly all the institutions that i've ever been part of all the people all the schools all the clubs i mean the harvard club even of new york came out with something this week but that was really really partisan <laughs> i said oh my gosh they even felt they had to virtue signal and they're more or less closed, you know. They, 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 they can only serve um, curbside turkeys. I mean, yes, hey, everybody, let's get our curbside turkey at the Harvard Club of New York um, for Thanksgiving. I mean, good God. And yet, um, even they, so, you know, here's sort of you and me against the world. Isn't that Helen Reddy? In this case, it's me against the world. And um, everybody's against you, but there's something risky about that for those who are against. They ought to listen to the story of uh, Barabbas, you know, that... Everybody voted for Barabbas. Nobody voted for the other. I'm not making a comparison by that, but I'm just saying it's possible for you to be in a situation where it's 100 to 1. And as in that great novel, The Tommyknockers by Stephen King, the one man who seems to have absolutely no fear um, ends up completely routing the entire town with all their strange alien transformed um, weapons of war. Um, so it's a, that's another thing I'm thinking about. Is it a mistake to pile on um, against one confident individual, or would it be would it be wiser wiser to sort of exercise a kind of imperial calm and wait it out a little bit in the confidence that this one outnumbered candidate will in fact lose because the forces of reality are against him? But when you pile it on, are you somehow rocking a cosmic boat that um, seems to have worked in the case of uh, Napoleon and Alexander and, uh, gosh, Frederick the Great. Isn't that Carlyle? Didn't Carlyle write a book called about The Great Man Theory of History? Anyway, I just raised that question. I wonder if my friends who feel so strongly on one side might perhaps just take a pacific calm for the next week or so in hopes that their views will triumph. Um, and... Uh, and um, see what the cosmos has to say about such a state of affairs. Well, those are my two little points, and we're going to end. We started with the 52% from the soundtrack of Wild in the Streets, and um, we're going to end by a great uh, Hal uh, David uh, Burt Backrack number from the Golden Era that sort of deals a little bit romantically with these themes. Love you.
Walking all alone 